0: Hi everyone, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hilliard. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast, and subscribe to his newsletter at DJ So let's get to it.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to episode 161 of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I interview neuroscience professor, sleep researcher, and TED speaker, Dr. Roxanne Pritchard. Dr. Pritchard has spent decades studying and researching everything under the sleep umbrella, and she is on a mission to help spread the importance of one of the most forgotten yet most powerful skills in life, sleeping. As you guys remember, a couple weeks on the show, I had Johan Hari, and he wrote the book Stolen Focus. And in his book, he talks about how he went uh, traveling basically all over the world, talking to 200 of the top experts in the realm of focus. And one of the people that he talked to was Dr. Roxanne Pritchard in the sleep department. And he wanted to know more about how does uh, sleep or lack thereof affect our focus? And as I was reading Johan's book, I couldn't help but see the University of St. Thomas tag that he put next to Dr. Pritchard's name, which is where I went to school. It is only about 30 minutes up the road from where I'm currently located. So I had to reach out, get her on the show and talk about sleep. So really uh, thankful for the networking and the relationships and the introduction that Johan was able to give for me and Dr. Roxanne Pritchard. Some of the topics we got into today were first, what are the updates on changing daylight savings time? Lately in the news, there's been a lot of uproar about making a standard uh, uh, time for everybody, not changing clocks. And I wanted to know what was her position on it and is she as passionate about it as some other people are. After that, we talked about what is sleep and, and what is happening to our brain while we are sleeping. I wanted to set the table, create a foundation for the conversation of what is sleep? Why is it so important? Then we talked about how much sleep do we need? Uh, the correlations of sleep, stress, and mental health. We talked about supplements, products, and aids that impact our sleep for the better or worse. Then we talked about one of her favorite subjects, which is sleep deprivation in children and college students. Uh, She's fighting the good fight, trying to create more awareness in this category. And at the end, we talked about three tips to get your best night sleep. For those of you that don't know the importance of sleep, this will be a really great conversation for you or for those of you that are looking to uh, get better sleep, get deeper sleep, get higher quality sleep, whether you are... A parent, an athlete, or just somebody who is finding themselves tired a lot, this is a great episode for you with a ton of information. And as always, if you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a rating and review. That helps my show grow tremendously and also helps to bring on more amazing guests like Dr. Pritchard. Thank you guys for the continued support. Enjoy the show and let's go. Dr. Roxanne Pritchard, welcome to the MyFit podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm not a huge news guy, but I want to start this conversation because I've been hearing a lot about daylight savings time and people talking about getting rid of daylight savings time. Can you educate me on where that's at?
0: Sure. Actually, what you probably heard was Marco Rubio's bill, which passed quickly through the Senate last week the day after the spring forward when we lost an hour's sleep, um, is a bill it's called something like Protecting Sunshine Act um, that would make daylight saving time permanent. So um, I think from the sleep community, this is exactly in the wrong direction. It's exactly opposite of what public health research shows. And a lot of people, including myself, are kind of up in arms about how policy could be so blatantly ignoring human physiology and science. And I would happily talk about this for the next hour if you want.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have I have a ton of questions to get through, but I think first, just to continue, why why is daylight savings? Why is that such a immediate fix? Why is this so important?
0: Okay, so first, let's start with the idea of changing clocks back and forth. Just isn't a good idea. So just like biologically, our bodies run on a 24 hour rhythm that's entrained by sunlight and something like 10 to 20 percent of our genes. So we've got 23 pairs of chromosomes, about 20,000 genes and 10 to 20 percent of those are under this circadian clock that's entrained by the sun. So that includes um, genes that encode things like myosin for muscle expression and plasticity and human growth hormone is on the circadian rhythm. So you have so much basic physiology that's set to this 24-hour rhythm that's synchronized to the sun. So the idea of switching back and forth basically means a jet lag for your body. And it can take up to a week for your body's rhythms to accommodate for that. Also, the spring forward is usually associated with sleep loss because people think, oh, I'm losing an hour of sleep rather than, oh, I should sacrifice an hour of wake, which is how my family handles it. Um, But this sleep loss leads to more cardiac arrests on that Monday, the day after we lose an hour of sleep, more car accidents, just people feeling blah at work. And um, decrease in antibody production too. So it's not physically good to change clocks. So that's the first thing I want to say: okay. is changing is bad.
1: Is there anything you can do, we can do to help reverse this? It seems like it's an uphill battle, and we'll get into some more of that later. But just for daylight savings, it seems like they're going a completely different direction. Is there anything you can do to help change this, reverse this?
0: Um, the you mean the policy wise? Yes. Okay, so it's going to be in the house and. So I think one of the things that happened is it didn't go up for discussion, (laughs) but like passed it the the same way they passed making last Sunday in March, um, the official main maple syrup day. So it was just kind of quickly passed through, even though this impacts everything from schools and training and sports and traffic flows. It's it's a big mess. They, They passed it without looking at it. So the, the house is probably going to look at it with more evidence. And here's where a lot from the scientific community are hoping to bring in some evidence. Mm-hmm. So I guess the next thing I want to talk about with that is why, um, why we should have standard time or why we should have a body clock that's aligned to the solar mm-hmm. clock. And I know there's a, going to be a lot of questions about um, what that means for circadian rhythm. So I guess I'd like to start by just acknowledging that there's a wide variety of Human circadian rhythms and a wide variety of sleep cycles. And this makes sense if we're living in communities. So, think about our bodies living in kind of hunter gatherer societies. You need some people on morning shift. You need some people on night shift. It helps to have somebody who can wake up at the drop of a hat to defend your community. So, it it makes sense that we have a lot of different styles. And these styles are genetically encoded. So, some people are morning people, like I am. What are you? Yep, me too. <laughs> okay. Um, and we get all sorts of benefits from being morning people. Um, night people have it really rough in the society where they don't have job protections. They're always kind of forced to work and go to school against what their body clock says is the best. And so just want to acknowledge that. Um, so morning people have a biology that says their whole 24 hour rhythm kind of will start maybe a couple hours before sunrise. So your body will start to heat up, like physically your core body temperature will rise. Cortisol will increase your dopamine and norepinephrine so that you waking up feels like your body is ready to be awake. Night people will have this when their body is ready to be awake. It's just like four or five hours after when morning people start. And we just have to acknowledge it. But reverse happens in the evening where my body starts to really wind down between seven or no, 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 not seven, like nine and 10, I'm kind of done with the day. And so following that pattern is really empowering. If people understand when their body performs best cognitively, when it performs best physically, what kind of workouts work best when, and I do a lot of consulting with NCAA athletes and coaches about, Hey, at this age for college, a lot of them are going to be norm night people. And if you're having them do all these kind of strength training at six in the morning, they're still in their sleep zone and you're going to get more accidents, more injuries and not the best performance. So that's something we can kind of delve into in more detail, too. But I just want to acknowledge that we do have different best times, but all of these times are, are synchronized by the light, the first light of day and morning light has more. Biological oomph than evening light. So, having the morning light occur at a time so that at noon we're halfway done with light and ha- like we're ha- exactly between sunrise and sunset being noon is what millions of years of evolution has kind of made for our bodies. So, we'd be out of sync if we shifted times arbitrarily. Mm-hmm.
1: So two questions. First is I'm I'm thinking about the sunlight and I'm thinking about we just got out of the winter and winter in Minnesota is a different beast. If you guys are not from here, it's very dark all the time. If we're trying to create a lifestyle around the sun and we don't see a lot of sunlight, what are some of the effects and things that you've seen? I know depression is a lot bigger, seasonal disorder. Talk to me a little about the winter in Minnesota or in states in the North.
0: Yeah. So this is where I get super geeked out and talking about this. So like my dissertation was how does early light exposure physically change how the neurons in the eye connect to the brain? And there's like 13 different ways the eyes connect to the brain and only one of them do conscious visual perception. The rest do like non-conscious physiological responses to light, including mood and hormones and all these other things. And so societies that have these kind of big extremes between winter and summer in light exposure, so a lot of Europe, Northern Europe, Scandinavia, have kind of protections in place to cope with some of this. So um, pretty much everybody in Scandinavian countries, Iceland, grew up drinking uh, a tablespoon of cod liver oil every morning. It's just kind of like, this is your vitamin D. This is something you physiologically need to do. So part of it for us in Minnesota is um, upping up our vitamin D levels. Part of it, and I'm originally from Texas, and I've really appreciated how Minnesotans just get dressed and do stuff like you still go outside (laughs) and you just get better clothes and you make that happen. So it's still getting that light exposure, but we also use light boxes. So light boxes can be really helpful. They have to be at a certain light level, usually 10,000 lux, which is not nearly the brightness you would get on a summer day Um, and the right kind of spectrum. So, there's red lights, full spectrum lights, blue lights, and they all have different physiological effects. So the, the broad spectrum and blue lights are the ones that are most powerful for your body. So um, <laughs> it's funny how we use that in our house. So um, I'm a morning person. I actually use the light to extend my evening a little bit because my body wants to get sleepy two hours after sunset. Which is great for spring, right? Totally. <laughs> but in the winter, I'm like, ooh, oh, seven o'clock, time for bed. <laughs> and that's gonna mean I wake up at three in the morning. So I extend my photo period with the light box in the evening. My husband's the opposite. He's a night person. So he's he uses it in the morning to, to help him. There's uh there's this great like city in in Norway. It's more of a hamlet that's between so such deep kind of um gorges and cliffs that they literally do not get sunlight for a couple weeks in the winter. So they develop these great mirrors that directed down into oh, the wow. city square.
1: Oh, it's so fascinating. Very cool. Um, so you, know, you talked about the difference between a morning person and night person. You just asked me what I was and we're both morning people. I'm curious, is that something that is genetic? Is it just something that you're raised on or how do, how do, you, how do you know what you are?
0: Um, That's a good question, because it changes developmentally. And this gets into school start times and like best time to train child um, sport enthusiasts. Uh, So the it's genetic, it's 100% genetic, you could take a genetic test and figure out what you are. It's basically how long the protein machinery and this little part of your hypothalamus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, how long it takes them to go through their cycle of on off, which is kind of like a 12 hour shift in relation to first light. So all of that is genetic about kind of, are you one that starts like first light and let's get that go going, or is it like a little bit lag delayed from first light?
1: So can that be out-trained?
0: Nope, not really. Um, the, <laughs> I, and if you do, like, we have at least 25% of our workforce that work shift. And they're always working against what is biologically best for their body. And sadly enough, they die earlier, have higher rates of cancer, all these other negative sequelae because of it. Um, so, but it, it, you can do things that would make it worse. And daylight savings time is one of those. And I can talk about why. And you can do things that would kind of make it a little bit better but i think the best thing is just to go all in on flex time work from home um and honor that there's going to be if you have a company of 100 people there's going to be 15 that are going to do their best work in the evening like late evening and another 15 that would be happy to come in at five and leave by two or three in the afternoon and just make that happen um didn't want to talk developmentally, like little kids will get up early, like the weekends they will be like, hello, it's six and seven, I'm up. But around puberty, and it really does strike with puberty, with girls hitting this delay earlier than boys, that their bodies will start to shift into a more evening type. So this happens like literally with the same kind of rate of puberty. Uh, so like college men tend to really sleep in and just have a harder time falling asleep. Which I think makes it unfair if you have like a, a required organic chemistry class that must start at 8 a.m., the people that are more um, morning people are going to have a much better advantage grade wise than the evening people.
1: Fascinating. Um, before we get too deep, Dr. Pritchard, I want to just go back and, and talk to kind of set the table for the people that are just very new to this stuff. So, can we just talk about? why sleep, not only why sleep important, but what is happening during sleep? What is, what is physically happening to the brain? And then we can kind of set the table for everybody else. I know we get, I get excited (laughs) about this stuff too. So I like to, I like to geek out as well, but I don't want to forget about some of the listeners.
0: Yeah. So thanks for taking it back to basics. Um, And this is, yeah. So I give a lot of talks around the country about why sleep is important. And I think understanding why is important really changes your relationship to sleep. You don't think of it as the, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or sleep is wasted time. You really think of it as sleep is life-giving, sleep is required, sleep is training time. So let's start there. Sleep is required for life. It's like food, water, air. You die if you don't get enough of it. And this can happen in as little as a couple days without sleep. Your brain can have seizures. You can have cardiac arrhythmia from sleep deprivation. And obviously you can have a lot of accidents just from sleep deprivation, which we see. Uh, So it's something you physiologically need. All animals sleep. Why? Sleep is for the brain. The brain needs, in in our species, in humans, it's about two hours on for one hour unconscious. It needs that period of being unconscious for it to do basic maintenance. So the brain weighs about three pounds, but it takes 20% of our calories. Like that is a lot of sugar going to our brain for a three pound organ. It's incredibly... um, just uses so much energy and everything that eats excretes. And and basically, we have a lot of waste products um, from metabolism, from cellular metabolism and all this brain processing that need to be cleared away for the brain to function. This happens during sleep.
1: Go ahead, keep going. Sure. Okay, so sleep for <laughs> one
0: is physically the process by which the brain clears itself of cellular waste. And if you don't clear this out, you have a much higher chance of developing mild cognitive impairment, dementia, Alzheimer's disease. So sleep is critical here. That's during slow wave sleep. And then and that's more of the first half of the night. The second half of the night has more this bizarre state called rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And this is when sleep, We are basically paralyzed and hallucinating. So we spend about two hours a day physically unable to move any muscles except our diaphragm to breathe and our eyes, which roll around rapidly. And we are having these extraordinary adventures in our brains without our consciousness. It seems like such a weird thing to do. But again, it's a biological necessity. You would die without this REM sleep. What is it doing? Um, Our best evidence so far suggests that it's really important for plasticity, for learning new concepts, and for also integrating our experiences of the world into our existing framework and updating with new events. So we do a lot of processing in sleep. Um, And the great thing is we don't have to be conscious for it. In fact, if we're conscious, it kind of interrupts its efficiency. So, our brain goes through the day and figures out, what do I need to remember? What should I forget? Because that was kind of embarrassing. and I don't want to keep being triggered by that. How can I make this new skill I learned in practice, how can I make it so that it's more efficient the next day? What neurons can I get myelinated so those connections are quicker or talking to each other with new dendrite growth? So, you get you get this brain, these physical changes in learning that happen with REM sleep, and you also get sort of an emotional rebalancing, which is really important, too. Hmm. So cool. one, of,
1: one of the quotes in the book was from Focus um, from, from Johan was, "When we sleep, our minds tend to identify connections and patterns from what we've experienced during the day." This is one of the key sources of our creativity. It's why narcoleptic people who sleep a lot are significantly more creative." I thought that was mind-blowing.
0: Yeah. And narcoleptic people tend to be able to access their REM sleep more readily than a lot of other people um, because they're kind of drifting between wake and REM sleep, whereas normally that would be buffered by non-REM sleep. So it would be almost like the people who have lucid dreams that are connected, something you can train for if you want to, that connects you more with what your unconscious mind is doing. And there's so many great examples of just like insights um, that happened during um during REM sleep. So <laughs> Rolling Stones um Keith Richards used to just like record himself during sleep, just in case he had an idea for a lyric and wanted to like oh, pop it out. So <laughs> um he had like, I don't know, two hours of himself snoring and then like dun, 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 and then just snoring again. And that is how can't get most no out of facts <laughs> born. No Other like Nobel prizes have been um, garnered from these scientist ideas and insights that happened during this creative period.
1: Oh man, that's so cool! So, so it sounds like REM sleep is kind of the more gold part of sleeping, and then there's also the slow wave sleep. So, if, if somebody's sleeping for eight hours, Doctor Pritchard, how how long would you estimate they're in the REM sleep?
0: Couple hours. Um, And I would say I don't want to dismiss non REM sleep because that's when you have a lot of your body repair happening. That's when you have the biggest testosterone and human growth hormone increasing. And that's when your body is ridding the brain of the cellular waste. So they're both important, Um, but a couple hours of REM sleep.
1: Something else that I think is people want to know is how much sleep do we need? I think there's a lot of people out there who say, I can survive off of five hours. I've been doing it all my life, et cetera, et cetera. And another quote in the book was that today, 40% of Americans are chronically sleep deprived, getting less than seven hours of sleep. I don't know about you, but that number blew my mind. 40% is a ton of people, um, obviously, which is why this is a huge topic while we're talking about it today. But first, how much sleep do we actually need?
0: That is going to really depend on you and your physiology. So there's a bell curve and most evidence suggests that for adults, that sweet spot is between seven and nine hours. Now, if you're kind of using these Fitbit recorders, seven hours sleep would probably include like an hour of wake, actually. So normally you wake up 15 to 30 times in the night and you just go back to sleep and it's not a big deal. Um, Yeah, but we used to spend a lot like 10 hours in bed was normal. 100 years ago, and from what we can tell most of human history, you spent more time in bed because it was dark, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no electric light. <laughs> that's what you did. Um, what To answer your question of how much sleep we need, if everybody would just sleep, go to bed when they're tired, and sleep until they're done sleeping, and wake up naturally without an alarm clock, and do that pretty regularly, that's how much you sleep you need. Mm-hmm. So I'm... I think I'm more of like six and a half to seven. My husband's more like an eight and a half to nine person. But all of that's going to depend on what's going on physiologically. When I'm sick, that goes up to eight hours. When I was pregnant, that was like 11 to 13. Um, when I'm really working through some trauma, that could be like eight or eight, eight and a half hours. So it kind of depends on what is going on with your body. After I got my COVID vaccinations, I <laughs> slept, I think, 14, 15 hours the next day. So it, it, it's, it's compensatory with what you're doing in your life. So elite athletes will sleep more in training season than off season because their body needs it more.
1: Talk to me about the parallels between sleep and stress. Another quote that you said in the book was, if you're not sleeping well, your body interprets that as an emergency. And I could imagine if you're not sleeping well, stress rises. Tell me about the correlation between the two, stress and sleep.
0: Right. So um, sleep deprivation is one of the quickest ways to ramp up your sympathetic nervous system. So for anybody interested in athletic performance, this has a lot of implications for what your starting heart rate is, what your starting blood pressure is. So your ceiling is, is lower if, if your floor is higher, I guess. So when, when you're not sleeping, your body's like, uh-oh, you're being very vigilant. You're giving up sleep there must be a tiger marauding your village. There might be hurricane season and you need to get everybody out. So it doesn't care that you're just watching like Ted Lasso on repeat or something like that. It It is interpreting it as you're giving up something you need for life. It must be for a dang good reason that you're doing this. So I'm going to help you by making you hungrier. And I think we're all familiar with the late night munchies. Like if you stay up, past whatever your bedtime is a couple hours later you're like wow i've become profoundly hungry and specifically for crap food um so some of the like metabolic studies have showed that you want to eat an extra 800 calories if you stay up pretty far past your bedtime which sounds like a lot but you know if put in slices of pizza term that's not too much per se Uh, so that's one of the adaptations our body makes to the stress is it must be a really stressful environment. Let's get a lot of quick, high calorie foods in you, and let's just increase your blood pressure, increase your blood sugar. And this is going to be really important for people who are kind of on the path for metabolic syndrome or prediabetes, um, because one of the best ways you can do to get your blood sugar down is to get better sleep because the adaptation to stress is for your liver to throw out a lot more glycogen to glucose and giving you a little blood sugar highs all throughout the day in response to sleep deprivation.
1: What about people that kind of sleep on edge? And what I mean by that, Dr. Pritchard is somebody who, um, so on days I, I coach class at, at 530 in the morning, it's it's much earlier than I wake up the rest of the week. I don't sleep as well because I'm thinking about my alarm coming up. Um, my soon-to-be wife is also just in the fire department. And so you know we'll have calls come in. And so sometimes she won't sleep well, not because she had a call, but she's almost anticipating that a call comes in. And this is something that you know, nothing is interrupting our sleep. You know, nothing, but there's not a call coming in. The alarm hasn't even gone off yet. But subconsciously we're almost thinking about we're almost there. It's almost time to wake up. Or is there a call? Talking a little about where does that play a role in getting quality sleep?
0: Yep. And um, I don't know if you have children. I'm guessing that's a no. Okay, but that's you're describing perfectly what it's like to have newborn children because you're like, okay, they're sleeping now. Go to sleep, but not so much that if they're crying, you'll Mm -hmm. miss it. Not so much. That's the hard thing. You have to listen for both crying and prolonged periods of quietness, because that could be another whole problem on your hands. So, yeah, when you are aware that you need like a flight the next morning, a class you have to teach, or listening for an emergency call to come in. And this is something I work with fire departments, too, um, because they will work for 48 hours. You can still sleep after at your shift or 48 hour shift, but you're always on edge cause something that might happen. So what's happening is your prefrontal cortex, the part that's like planning and contingency management and thinking all through these consequences, isn't gonna let you get that deep sleep. It'll keep kind of budding in with anxiety. And this is where this is gonna sound really familiar for people with anxiety because their brains keep waking them up from sleep with like, have you thought about where your birth certificate is? Or what happens if there's a new pandemic tomorrow? Do you have enough toilet paper? And like all these random stressors that are just kind of interrupting your sleep.
1: Any way to overcome it?
0: Yeah, there's some different strategies. And here I want to make sure everybody who has insomnia hears this message really clear. Best treatment for insomnia is not anything with drugs. And in fact, that can make it worse. Best treatment for um, insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for insomnia, which reframes your thinking about sleep. It gives you the confidence to have and sleep and strategies for what to do when your brain kind of generates all this list of things to be concerned about. So there's different strategies you can use for like, thank you, I'll put it away in my to think about tomorrow list or breathing exercises or different strategies that can kind of work with you to quiet that voice.
1: Because how true is it that sometimes your mind plays I don't know if it's tricks on you, but you're in bed, you're not sleeping. Then you're thinking about, oh, I'm not sleeping. Then you're thinking about all the shit you got to do tomorrow and everything just kind of piles up and you're almost like psyching yourself out in your mind. It's like, there's no way you're going to be able to sleep now because the anxiety is is at all time high. You could be tired and ready to go, but you're playing this mind game in your head.
0: And that's what exactly it is. And that's why the best treatment is something that gives you tools over that mind gameness. So it's almost like, performance anxiety for sleep which is so bizarre (laughs) because it's one of those things that should happen really easily um so what you want to do is and i have these days too so first of all you want to know that it's normal every once in a while i'm just like wow i'm too awake," even though i'm usually (laughs) asleep so the best thing to do is get out of bed because what you do if you just lay there worrying is your brain associates being in bed with like your worry chamber um rather than a place of Relaxation and rest so you want to get out of bed and go do something that's kind of boring that needs to be done in low light so here's the socks that need matching here's <laughs> the bills that need sorting so you don't want to go watch cool TV or anything but you want to do something that's just kind of something you're putting off and eventually your brain's going to be like, you know what I think I think we're ready for bed again
1: is there but it's not
0: that t- big of a deal
1: okay yes good to know is there such thing as too much sleep?
0: Yes. So um, what that usually is, is if somebody is like sleeping 10, nine or 10 hours or more all the time and still feels sleepy, their sleep isn't working for them. And there's usually some other physiological or psychological illness going on that needs treatment. So, um, for example, in depression, the sleep isn't the same architecture or same kind of ratio of non-REM deep sleep to REM sleep and that would need treatment. Anxiety you could just have like really fragmented sleep or it doesn't feel restful um, or sleep apnea and this is something that a lot of people especially people who lift and have really big strong sternomastoids and like neck muscles Need to think about is you can physically, <laughs> strangely enough, you can physically make your neck so muscular that it collapses your airway during rest. Um, so, something like half of linebackers or more have sleep apnea just because of the physiology of this. So, I'm going to make a gross sound here. Um, if your bed partner is like, wow, this is something. <sighs> <sighs> That you're making at night you need to get treatment for that but you can be getting 10 11 hours of that kind of sleep and feel exhausted all day long because your brain just never got the oxygen it needed during sleep
1: uh general question here but why does our lack of sleep damage our ability to focus so much
0: oh great question so being sleep deprived is literally like being drunk So you perform like on a cognitive vigilance task as if you're illegally drunk when you're sleep deprived. So basically it's not working as efficiently because your sleep didn't like purge your brain of all that metabolic waste. And that waste physically makes it harder for neurons to communicate with each other. So it's kind of like just a traffic jam in your brain. So it doesn't seem like ideas are connecting as easily.
1: Have you seen any sort of research on reaction times and things like that, whether it's in athletic or just, or in academia like, academia, like how, how does our reaction time slow down?
0: Oh yeah. Your reaction time is 19% less when you're sleep deprived. So that's something that I really, when I kind of give talks to athletes about the top 10 reasons why you should take sleep seriously, that's a really easy sale. If you are 19% faster off the starting block, but that's valuable milliseconds. And in a quick game like basketball, I'm so excited the women's final four is going to be here in a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. or maybe less than a couple of weeks now. Um, That's such a quick game that if you're 17% faster to react to something, you've entirely won the game.
1: Something that a quote that you said in the book was talking about if somebody, um, yeah, Roxanne showed me that if you stay awake for 18 hours, so if you wake up at 6am, go to bed at midnight, by the end of the day, your reactions are equivalent to be at 0.05% blood alcohol. If you try staying up another three hours, you're at the equivalent of being legally drunk. Again, blows my mind because I think a lot of people would hear 18 hours back. No way would I be up that long. But then you say, well, 6 a.m. To, to midnight, like, yeah, that, that's actually kind of possible. And here we are, and you're at the equivalent of being drunk.
0: Yeah. Yeah, or you are on your way. And what that scares me is, you know, for officers that say are working overtime or doing like another shift, at, like an event before their main shift, they can have easily 18 hours of sustained wakefulness and be on really high impact jobs, sleep deprived. And some of the regulations for like truckers have been rolled back. So they're not required to have that same sort of rest period.
1: Do you have any research or opinions about dreaming?
0: (laughs) I have lots of opinions (laughs) and some research. (laughs) Dreaming's fun. I mean, there's so many different ways to explore what it means. It's part of pretty much all major religious um, kind of structures. Is is what wisdom you've gained in dreaming. Um, So I think dreams are a really cool opportunity, almost like a Rorschach test to figure out what you're brains trying to figure out in life. So I'm gonna talk about a couple things. First, if you're like, I never dream, you totally do, and you're probably just sleeping great. Because you have to wake up and think like, whoa, that was weird. Remember to make some protein encoding to get that memory like in my brain. So if you don't remember your dreams, you're just you're still dreaming. You just are not waking up a lot, which is great. Second thing I want to bring up is this idea of threat rehearsal. So Dreaming gives us a chance to practice stuff that we don't get to do in real life very often, but which is important for survival. Again, our, uh, many, many elements of our brain, our emotional systems are set to hundreds of thousands of years ago when life was harder and tigers would eat your babies and stuff. So this threat rehearsal concept is, okay, I didn't get a chance to run away from the predator but let me refresh you (laughs) on what to do when that happens. So if you look at dream content, a lot of it is chase, threat, aggression, sex, just like pretty primitive drives that somehow mixed in with what's called day residue, which is something Freud, who was high on cocaine most of the time he was writing this, but still um, Freud noticed how much of our day experiences seeped into our dreams. And that's, That's true. So we're like, okay, I'm fighting my tiger, and I also have a paper to write, and I got to go to the bus stop. How do I make that work?
1: Hmm. I've heard Um, another cool
0: thing about dreams is, uh, yeah, uh, they reflect what you're processing. So if you're going through a major breakup or grief or trauma, that's gonna definitely show up in your dream and characters and feelings and and research shows that if you're dreaming about the thing that's causing. Use so much stress in your waking life, you have better outcomes six months later than the people who don't dream about it. Oh wow. That's so it's like processing for you.
1: Oh, super fascinating. I've also heard too, I don't know if this is true or not. This could be just bro science here, but that people are dreaming less nowadays because we're not sleeping as much. And maybe they're not getting as much of that REM sleep. So people just aren't dreaming as much.
0: Yep. And that is definitely true for uh, a couple of reasons. One is if you're, most of the dream happens in the last half of the night. So if you're waking up, your alarm goes up after six hours of sleep rather than eight. That's a lot of um, REM sleep lost. Also, the sleep drugs you might get if you just go to a family doc and be like, oh, I'm, I have insomnia. You're going to get uh, a benzodiazepine that is going to inhibit your dreaming. So it's going to change your sleep to more non-REM than REM. That's a problem. Alcohol does the same thing. So, um, that can limit our REM sleep.
1: I wanna, that's a great segue. Can we talk a little bit about the supplements and the aids and the products? I think some of the biggest ones are alcohol, like you said, caffeine and then also magnesium and melatonin I think are are another two common ones. Can we take a deeper dive into the sure. supplement part of part of it?
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm grading my midterms now on drugs and behavior. And pretty much it's like any drug that humans do is going to profoundly impact sleep. Um, so I'd want to throw in the marijuana, the nicotine, the alcohol, the caffeine, all of that. So and if you look at kind of why people do drugs, a lot of it is regulating sleep and wakefulness. Um, and people get in what's called the stimulant sedative loop. Um, I first saw it when I was had like a three year old. My kid was three, and she was like, "Mommy, let's play restaurant." I'm like, "Okay." And she's like, "What would you like to drink? Do you want coffee or wine?" I was like, "Whoa!" whoa. I feel called out here on that <laughs> stimulant sedative loop. <laughs> Well, we don't drink soda and that's pretty much besides water. The only thing she sees me drink. So, (laughs) but a more extreme example might be amphetamines and um, marijuana or barbiturates to get to sleep. And that's like what Johnny Cash and Elvis were struck with was that combination. Okay, let's start with stimulants. Caffeine, what it does is it blocks adenosine receptor. Adenosine, which you might hear from ATP, adenosine triphosphate, the major source of energy for our body, Um, when ATP is used, it kicks off an adenosine molecule, and we have a buildup of this adenosine as we go through our day. So if you're awake for 16 hours, you're going to have a lot of adenosine in your brain. When those receptors bind, when the adenosine binds to receptors, your brain's like, okay, I'm going to power down now and go to sleep. So caffeine doesn't give you more energy. It just blocks your ability from knowing that you're tired. Big problem with caffeine is it because oh, so many kids are using it in like pre-workout supplements now and stuff, and they're not paying attention to the milligrams in it or the timing of it or what other caffeine they've had in their system. So that's a little problematic. But caffeine has a half-life of six hours longer if you are breastfeeding on oral contraceptives, pregnant, menopausal, or paramenopausal. So I'm just going to say women have a longer half-life to caffeine, and it blocks our ability to get into deep sleep. So it makes kind of more fragmented sleep.
1: Is there a time where I know people talk about like eight hours before you go to sleep, six hours, like, is there a time that if people are going to drink the coffee that you like to say, hey, this is the cutoff?
0: Yeah. So for me, it's like 2 p.m. is my cutoff because I usually get get to sleep by nine. And if I need to stay up later, I will intentionally use caffeine later in the afternoon. Like if for some reason I need to do something, I I will use caffeine that way. But um, it's going to depend on your physiology. Uh, Some people are going to be more sensitive to caffeine. And those are people usually with anxiety disorders or heart irregularities that need to be more attuned to its effect. But I think a, um, like up to 400 milligrams of caffeine throughout the first half of your day is fine. As long as your body doesn't react negatively to it in terms of how you think or feel.
1: Sure. What's another uh, supplement that you like to talk about?
0: Okay. So everybody wants to talk about melatonin and this, is, this might bring me back to daylight savings time um melatonin is sometimes called the vampire hormone because it only comes out at night it's made by the pineal gland and it is prescription drug in most countries but for fda loophole it is just like you can get it in as many gummies as you want here whatever whatever dose Um, so melatonin is inhibited by light so if we make the sunset later in summer which in spring which is what happens if that permanent daylight savings time passes kids aren't going to get their melatonin till an hour later than they would under a natural solar cycle which means that their body isn't going to start winding down to sleep till later so that means my kiddo um who's in middle school isn't, she normally doesn't start to feel sleepy by 10 or 10.30. It's going to be 11 or 11.30 now, but she still has the same wake-up call. So some people think of melatonin as a sleep aid, and it's not quite bad. It's more for a marker for nighttime. It's best use is if you're purposely trying to change your circadian rhythm, like if you're traveling to a different time zone, or if you are a night person forced into a day person world, the melatonin can help kind of pull back your circadian rhythm a little bit.
1: So more of a short-term fix, not a long-term solution.
0: Yeah, not a long-term. And it doesn't actually make you go to sleep. And frankly, it's got some, we don't know the long-term consequences of exogenous. So taking like gummies for melatonin use, we don't know how to interact with kids. And it changes, um blood sugar, sort of how your body responds to blood sugar and, potentially alarming ways. So I don't use it unless it's under a very specific, we're changing time zones, kids. And I really want you to kind of have an aided shift. but I wouldn't use it because we don't know the long-term risks of it. Do you think it's a hormone. Of- you want to take your grandma's thyroxine.
1: <laughs> Do you think any of it could be straight up placebo? Like somebody oh, they yeah. took a pill and they're like, oh, now I'm feeling tired. Like, is that a part of the game?
0: Yeah, a neuroscientist little secret half of anything is usually placebo
1: effect. <laughs> like. that, that's a great secret. I appreciate you letting us in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um and something else too that I've noticed when I take I've only taken melatonin a few times in my life or any sort of pills and I always feel the next day I'm so groggy and I'm just unclear like my brain is just foggy for a while. Is that typical for people to, you know, yes, maybe it got you to sleep and whatever, but it kind of almost felt like a lasting effect into the next day and I'm like Dig that was not worth it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's what I think a lot of the sleep aids, like the prescription sleep pills, do. It's not the same kind of sleep. Right. I remember I took a um, one of those like prescription sleep pills once when I was traveling abroad, and I was like, "Whoa, that felt like." Uh, people, I'm not sure if they're familiar with the Train Spotting movie from long ago, but there's this great scene where basically somebody's going into an opiate overdose and falls into a coffin. Um, and that's what it felt like when I took that, I was like, Whoa, this is not what normal sleep feels like. I just felt like I was off for six or eight hours and then emerged. It wasn't normal sleep. It's more like anesthetic.
1: Do you have any other products, aids or supplements that you think are worth talking about? Yeah.
0: So magnesium, if it works for you, great. Like a lot of like the calcium stuff. Sure. If it's helping, um, I think a lot of it is that placebo effect, but if you've got a chamomile tea that you swear by and some good magnesium, go for it. Um, Yeah. Um, What else do we need to talk about? Nicotine is just trash for everything. So please avoid nicotine at all costs. It's horrible for sleep. Um, And marijuana or CBD is really complicated and we don't really understand it yet So I'd be wary of that too. Um, I know it's like half the kids on college who use marijuana say they do so just to get to sleep. And then they're more likely to be night owls who are just like, okay, it's 2 a.m. and I'm totally awake. And weed is the only way I know to get to sleep. Um, But the withdrawal from marijuana is insomnia. So it's not exactly giving you better sleep. It's just that if you stop taking it, you'll have worse sleep temporarily. What about alcohol? Ooh, alcohol is not good for sleep. (laughs) I felt like um, when I run into like members of the football team at 5 p.m., they're like, look, we're social drinking, like you said, in a way that won't interfere with our sleep. And I was like, yes. (laughs) So I talk a lot about the timing of alcohol. You don't want alcohol in your system when you go to sleep because it won't be the same type of sleep. So the best alcohol isn't healthy. For anybody in any circumstance, but if you were to drink, um, if you have it more at like 4 or 5 p.m., it'll be out of your system by the time you go to sleep.
1: Hmm. Because I think what happens is a lot of people want to have that nightcap or whatever right before they go to sleep. So then it's still in their system and they think that's what's putting them to sleep. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, it'll help you. Fall asleep faster, but it's going to enhance the non REM at the expense of the REM. And you're going to be more likely to wake up um, more often throughout the night. And if you go to, sleep, if you have a lot of alcohol in your system, so I mean, it is spring break in college campuses around <laughs> the world now, um, you're not getting sleep. Like a blackout is not the same thing as sleep. A blackout is self administered anesthesia. So we're kind of talking about the differences of that. So if you have somebody who drinks, like four or five drinks on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they're going to have three days of accumulated REM sleep suppression, which is going to result in what's called REM rebound, where your dreams are much more vivid and nightmarish, and they interfere with your non-REM sleep, making you even more tired.
1: So to put it all together, you would say that um, the, all these drugs and these alcohol and these sleep aids, what they're basically doing is putting yourself into artificial sleep and you think you're getting the good sleep, but really it's just a, a lower level of optimal amount of sleep. And some people probably live in that for, I mean, there's some people that probably live in that for their entire lives and they're just never getting, they, maybe they don't even know what that next level of sleep feels like because they're just so used to the artificial stuff.
0: Yeah. Or they're so used to sleep deprivation and being constantly sleepy. They don't know any other way. So when I work with college students, I ask, when's the last time you went to bed when you felt sleepy, slept until you're done sleeping and woke up naturally every day in a row for a week. And they literally don't know the answer to that.
1: Mm.
0: Like, and maybe that's a good question for your, your listeners too. When's the last time? You think that's true for you, that you've got the sleep that your body needs. And when you are in this good sleep cycle, the world feels so different. So I spend a lot of time saying, if your inner voice is saying like, I'm tired. When can I have a nap? When do I need coffee? I'm so tired. I'm so tired. That's so much wasted mental real estate. That's so much off of your potential that you're performing at.
1: I like to close down by talking about a subject that I think you are very passionate about, and that's sleep deprivation in children and students. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of what you found and what you're most passionate about. And I think to kick it off, one of the, one of the quotes from the book was um, quoting you is that she discovered that on average, a typical college student has the same sleep quality as an active duty soldier or a parent of a newborn baby. As a result, the majority of them were constantly fighting off this drive to sleep and they're not at. Uh, able to access their neural resources and then you also said that she started teaching the science to her students but the students all knew they were bone tired the problem is they've been accustomed to it since puberty basically i'm just going to let you have the floor here what why, why do we need to be so focused in on sleep with our kids
0: oh we need to be so focused because we need to give them the best shot at life that we can. Right. So sleep is so important for mental health, like incredibly important for mental health and teens need like nine to 11 hours of sleep. They really do. So if you Google, why is my teen? So dot, 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 like <laughs> the words that come up are all symptoms of sleep deprivation. So hungry all the time, mean, stressed, uncommunicative, Tired, exhausted, like petty—all of that is what happens when we when we sleep deprive ourselves. And I think like the top three causes of death in teenagers: um, car accidents, suicide, overdose, are all directly consequences of of bad sleep. Right. So when you we already talked about if you're not sleeping well, your reaction time is slowed. You're not thinking well. You're you have lapses of an intention. Um, suicidality is something that really increases uh, too. And it's spring is actually the highest time, not winter. Uh, that expanded light is something that sort of triggers impulsivity, especially in sleep deprived people. So having teens kind of starting schools way too early and grinding with so many activities and jobs a lot of them are only getting like five, six hours of sleep and they are exhausted and they're just so emotionally reactive. They don't have the time or place or like mental real estate to to kind of learn what it is not to be in a constantly stressed body. And that's so limiting of their potential and their passions in life. Um, So besides like directly attributing to kids deaths, um, I think it Deprives them of the opportunity to learn and grow and just like experience life, not on a constantly stressed out, exhausted way.
1: You're in the school system. So you obviously know what time schools start. My mom is a middle school teacher down here in Lakeville and her first hour starts at 724, which seems to be just insane for me. They get done at two. And of course, getting done at two is great and all that. But if you were to be a principal at a middle school, what time would you start class? What, What would that look like?
0: So the American Academy of sleep medicine says there shouldn't be any middle school or high school that starts before eight 30. Cause their kids bodies just physically aren't um, awake yet. And I bet your mom agrees. Mm-hmm, of kind of saying, <laughs> <laughs> like, What are these kids like? Um, and yeah, so I would, I would start high school maybe around 10. I would start middle school around nine elementary school can start at eight cause the little kids bodies can adjust and typically are more morning oriented anyway.
1: Yeah. She said that too. I remember her saying at one point, like the first hour of the day, like they're pretty much just brain dead. Like they're not even awake yet. So it's like, why yeah. are we, why are we even starting at this time when this first hour is just getting them to wake up where you come in at eight 24 instead of seven twenty-four? Now we're getting something out of this first hour. And I think a lot of it too, is just the society that we live in, right? Everybody's like, and this is probably a, a much grander topic, but we live in this world where it's just go, go, go. And there's not, you know, the, the idea of sleep is almost being lazy and we're 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 preaching, you know, more is better and we're telling our kids that and because of that they're just used to it and so this is just the way it is and so because they're doing it in middle school it's like why wouldn't i do that in high school college and then in my work life
0: yeah and i think one of the most radical things we can do is set that example of prioritizing rest and resisting the grind culture and following what your body wants to do and recognizing that you have times of day when you feel best and and just kind of teaching that embodied cognition to your kids and having them. Oh, that's another thing I'd love to talk about more. How many college kids I feel like are so dissociated from what their body is telling them, um, but because they've just stuffed down like don't do tired, tiredness as we just grind through, grind through, grind through that they'll give themselves like pneumonia before they realize something's up with me.
1: Seems like there's been a rise in ADHD, especially in this country. Do you attribute that to lack of sleep, or do you have any correlation studies, facts on lack of sleep with ADHD?
0: Absolutely. Um, some longitudinal studies with kids show that half of ADHD diagnoses resolve within six months after you treat sleep problems. Wow! So, and that's a real. It's not just ADHD; it's depression, and anxiety too. Like I don't know how any psychologist would give a diagnosis for a kid that has bad sleep because all of these things could be consequences of bad sleep.
1: Fascinating. So I think as we kind of put this all together here, what I learned from Johan was this whole idea of focus, right? There's kind of two different approaches. One is a systematic approach, government, all these things that are kind of beyond our control that need to fix some of these things. And then there's more of a Forget what he called it, more of a day to day approach where it's you. What can you and I do to help fix some of the stuff? So, if you were to kind of talk a little bit about the day to day stuff, what can we do? What can you and I do to help change this motive? Because what I feel like, and I feel bad saying this, I feel like it's getting worse and we're climbing an uphill battle. and And every decade that goes by, it's more busy, more this, more that. What can you, me, and the listeners do to help kind of reverse this? I don't know if it's a dilemma, what you call it, but how can we- Yeah, no, I keep wanting
0: to go to like systems, like the government things of like, okay, we need universal basic income. We need paid time off for children, (laughs) like for for maternity (laughs) leave and so many other things like that. So I think part of this grind culture is we are living in an economy that's just kicking the shit out of us, especially this younger generation with the amount of student student debt and the housing crisis is crushing. So I'm trying to bring it back to what can we do on the individual level. And I think a lot of that is really empowering your relationship with your body and understanding like, number one, I need to take care of me. And this is Audrey Lord, but um, self-care is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation and just kind of keeping that as number one. Um, in I also say, like learning more about your sleep, like really paying attention to, all right. I just drank this Red Bull. How does that make my body feel? What's happening when I do that? Um, and setting an example for those around you by just saying no. And this is what I appreciate with like, friend groups my age, we will often cancel plans and just be like, mm, I don't have the energy today or it's it's not matching what my mood. And I don't think I would ever do that as a 20 year old as uh, to be like, oh, <laughs> I've got to do all the things. But being really respectful of people's no and honoring that is something we can do as well.
1: It seems like people that probably listen to interviews like this, Dr. Pritchard, and they understand like, yes, I need sleep. I know that this is important. Like it's not very complicated stuff, but yet they just don't seem to do it. There's just a gap between I know what I need to do, but I'm just not doing it. I know that gap is much bigger than the six inches that I'm putting in my hands. But how do you how do you close that gap?
0: one way i think is to if you can challenge yourself to try it for three weeks and just see how it goes so just do a little experiment do i feel better am i happier do i get less sick when i do this um second you will find you're so much more efficient and satisfied when you're getting good sleep so tasks that used to seem like they took forever just get done because you have the focus johan's book of of being able to kind of execute that efficiently. So I would say, just just try it for a couple of weeks. Nobody has ever come to me after doing this and improving your sleep, saying, "Oh, I was doing so much better when I was burning the candle at both ends. I felt so much better then. No, everybody benefits with good sleep.
1: Last thing, what are three tips to give somebody to help them get to either more more sleep or higher quality sleep? three things that they can walk away with.
0: Whew. okay number one i think most people know this but dark cold bedroom so we're getting that longer light in minnesota now get those blackout shades um turn down the heat till it's like 60. your body really likes to sleep in a cold dark room so make that happen so that's pretty easy um two is have a little bit of mindfulness about where your mind is going So be aware if when you close your eyes, your mind immediately wants to go to stress and worry. That might be something to explore further in therapy. That might be something that you need to kind of add in some more of those nighttime meditations. And there's so many great meditations out there that you can just put on a podcast, listen to a mindfulness-based stress reduction or body scan and help you get to sleep. Do you have one you recommend? Um, I, I did have, am a Peloton person now. Um, and they have a lot of great, uh, sleep podcasts that I think are really good. Um, the calm app I've heard really good things about too. Oh, <laughs> I like to listen to LeVar Burton reads. That's one of my favorite podcasts of all times. So he just reads, he has got such a beautiful resident voice and he reads short fiction. So it's about a 40 minute story. So I'll just, I've got these headphones that, cover my eyes too. So it's in the dark. I put it on a sleep timer, listen to about 30 minutes of the story. I'm usually asleep by 20. Very cool. And the last one, number three, number three, I was afraid you would notice I hadn't come up with the third. Um, <laughs> yeah, this sounds I would say, Mm, it's so different for everybody. Cause some people have even like go to the doctor, you have sleep apnea and you sure. <laughs> like take that care. And that's a lot of people who have that. Um,
1: would you say something would, involving blue light or being on Netflix or being on the phone?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That's an easy one. Thank you um, for the prompting. Yeah. Limit your light exposure after sunset. So that's one of the quickest and most powerful ways our brain knows what time it is and when to make melatonin. So I'm the person in the house that's turning off all the lights except for small kind of reddish hued warm light in the evening, because I want to really make a difference between like daylight and nighttime. And that helps our brains, um, get to sleep. So do like, you don't have to do the sexy mood lighting at restaurants, do that in your own house. Do
1: you have any thoughts about the blue light blockers?
0: They're good. Um, so blue light, there's a special cell in our eyes called the, Um, melanopsin-containing retinal ganglion cell. You don't need to know the cell type, but the powerful thing about it is it responds to the color of the sky, which is blue light. And so that's also what's in a lot of our screens. So if you have blue light on at night, that's telling your brain, don't make melatonin yet. Don't get to sleep yet. It's still daytime. So blocking that in the evening is helpful. So I have apps on my phone and on my screens that take out the blue light. So even if I'm on my devices, it's just, it's like that night shift
1: what are those called
0: um let's see night shift is the one that just comes on iphones yep. um and then there's another one you can hear me typing i'm trying to remember that flux okay. um just get flux f and it's free so it's the one i have on my computer
1: very cool Oh, that's great stuff. Um, my last question, Dr. Pritchard. So you're, you're a researcher, you're continuing your education, obviously. What are some things that, that you're really passionate about or what, what are you
0: working on right now? Oh, oh, I love that question. Um, so part of it is trying to live my life. I, not in a grind culture. So I'm a good example of my kids. Um, so pushing back on being involved in everything, but I am passionate about policies that make better life for us all. So it's probably not surprising uh, to learn that um, neighborhoods with high people of color have much worse conditions for sleep. So I'm interested in s- sleep equity justice. So more traffic sounds, more pollution, hotter because there aren't trees. So I want, I one of the things I'm thinking about is how we can get better environments for everybody to sleep. So there's a organization called, um, um, oh, this is embarrassing that I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's an organization that gets beds for children in need. And you'd be surprised at the number of families in the Twin Cities that don't have literal beds for their kids. So they're kind of sleeping multiple kids on the couch or on the floor. So just making sure that we can get um, sleep for everybody is what I'm passionate about.
1: So cool! That's awesome. I would, I, lo- I would love to hear the the
0: my very own bed is the name of the organization. My very own bed. <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. I, th- I think it's too. Another thing that's interesting is the idea that you know, like you said in the beginning, there's there's food and there's air and then and then then sleep. But people forget that third one, and we're just I don't know. It just doesn't get as much publicity or attention as it does on food and breathing, and it's just like. It's mind-blowing to me how people don't take it as serious. And you're talking about somebody whose sleep hygiene is, I believe, very high. I take it very seriously. I always go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time, um, except for one day of the week. But it just blows my mind sometimes that some people forget about that or just kind of put that on the back burners where you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's, that's, that's in there.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So cool. Well, thank you for taking the time, Dr. Pitcher. I really appreciate it. If somebody wanted to learn more from you or anything like that, where can I point them?
0: Ooh, I guess my email works, so um, yeah, that would work. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> so you can share oh, my, my email.
1: Up. Yeah, I will. Cool. Uh, well, thanks for doing this again. Um, I really appreciate it. And, and uh, everybody needs to go home and, and get some sleep.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: All right. All right. We'll see. We'll see you guys next week for another episode of the MyFit Podcast. Take care.